Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this is Coco, and you're listening to Conversations with Coco and Friends. I was introduced to George Matthew Johnson through Podmate Cleo. And after reading his book, All Boys Aren't Blue, and going into the deep dive on the internets, I not only felt so inspired, I felt challenged in the best possible way. George M. Johnson is a writer and an activist, and my copy of his memoir is dog-eared and highlighted with notes all over the place. Being an engaged, left-leaning, cisgendered, female-identifying woman, I thought I knew quite a bit about the queer perspective. But there's layers to this ish. And George's book and our subsequent discussion was a great reminder to me that we are never done learning, and being stagnant in said learning is not serving anyone. We caught up with George in his apartment in NYC over a video call and gone into it about race, sex, family, and the current state of affairs. I hope you enjoy. Hi, George. Hey. (laughs) How are you, honey? I'm pretty well in yourself. Oh, you know, staying busy, doing our thing. (laughs) We can get this show on the road. So Coco, take it away, girl. So you're currently based in New York. Um, would you live anywhere else? Oh, um, probably California. Um, I mean, I'm going to have to be bi-coastal because I'm going into TV and film. So I would say somewhere L.A. Yeah, somewhere around L.A. or Hollywood. Would it change? Um, I guess you don't know until you're actually there. But New York inspires so much of your work. Do you think that it would... I suppose it would open up a new perspective, something, some, some new content. Yeah. And I mean, I've been to LA a couple of times. The last time I went was like maybe a month or so ago. Um, LA is easier, in my opinion, to write out there than it is out here. Cause everything is like so on top of each other. And so like a train to walking to a bus to another train. to it's like, like, I don't know. It's just like really, really fast out here. And so like anytime I'm out there, the way that I write, I just feel like I have more space to think and kind of breathe and write. So I think it will probably inspire, um, I guess, my writing a little bit differently. Where is your what is your writing process now in New York City? Like, do you have a spot in your space? Do you have a like a ritual, the tea or coffee? Like, is there? Um. Not really. I mean, I get up around like seven every day. Um, I do go on my balcony. I have my coffee and stuff to kind of just like get my mind centered. Um, and I have an altar um, made up for like my grandmother and my grandfather. And so I do pray um, at that in the morning uh, just to kind of, you know, remind myself that like even if I have some bad things happen in the day, like overall, like the day is going to be fine. And like to just kind of get through it. 
Um, and I do all of that and I make sure I have breakfast. And then that's typically, I usually start writing around like 8.30 or 9 after I kind of get myself uh, going. And I break my writing up throughout the day. So I don't try to like write from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Like I write from like 9 to 1. Then I'll go for a walk, maybe do something, come back and then maybe like 3 to 7, then do something else. Then if I'm feeling good, then like maybe from 10 to 1 a.m., I'll try and write again. Um, but I break it up like that because that's the only way like I can kind of like get my mind recharged to go back into the work. It's always so interesting to listen to different writers and authors and journalists and on their process because it's always so different. There's not just one way that you do it. Right. It's so interesting. I love that. We sort of started talking about this in the beginning before we were in the actual podcast, George, but obviously you give a lot of yourself to the cause and fighting and advocating and being you. Um, and I think what we really want to know is like, what inspires you when you're feeling like sick and tired of the realities that black people are facing day in and day out, particularly in black America? Yeah. It's funny because like, I, I don't have many moments of that. Um, I'm pretty good at like balancing, like not getting into like those type of depressive states because some days do just seem like overwhelming of like grief and like overwhelming of like depression and just kind of like, when do we ever get out of this? Uh, usually though, it's interesting on those days, I'll always get like a small message from somebody who's like read the book or something that always like reminds me like, all right, like, pull yourself out of like wherever you're feeling. But I get like the the really like the most beautiful messages about like my writing or how something I did helped someone. Um, and usually that's enough to keep me going. Uh, I do pour a lot of myself out. And so I have to be very careful because sometimes I'm not being poured into in the same way that I'm pouring out into the world. Uh, but I, I think that's why I'm so tied to like my spirituality now and making sure that like, if I get like in a really, really space that I feel like is 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 nuts or crazy in my mind, um, I'll sage the apartment and like, you know, um, I'm very big on that. Like I'll sage the apartment. Um, I have candles. I, I like candles, um, not just the white candle. Like I have the seven day white candles for a, a particular thing that, that they do. But I also just have like regular candles. And so sometimes I'll just light my candles and just sometimes the scent and the aroma from the candles will pull me into a, um, a better place. Um, my grandmother used to drink tea a lot and I drink coffee primarily. But if I'm I guess if I'm like getting into a place where I feel like I need to be recharged, I'll drink tea instead um, because it kind of just reminds me of her and I drinking tea together. And so in many ways, that kind of like puts me in a. A much <clears throat> a much better spot. And it's interesting because I actually drank tea for the first time in a little while last night. And I actually didn't wake up till like 10 today. And I don't ever sleep that late, like ever. And so um, it kind of I guess it was like something that I needed to do to just kind of like bring me back and calm me down a little bit. And so, yeah. No, for sure. I love that. And I think super everyone's comments are very accurate in the sense of loving the way that you write. We all dove into All Boys Aren't Blue and it was super thought provoking. I think starting with the title of the book, we're so programmed to these gender constructs that we want to hear from you what resources you recommend for us folks who are working to unlearn 
the constructs that we grew up with. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say like, if you're big on social media to like, make sure that you follow queer people. Um, I think like that's the biggest resource. Like if you follow like black trans people, black queer people, you learn so much just from our daily experiences. Like when we put it out there, it's like, oh, I never thought about the fact that you may have to go through this in a way that I don't have to go through this. Um, so I always say and advocate for like actually following and listening to trans people. I think like some people who are greater, like um, Deshaun Harrison, I think Raquel Willis, uh, Hari Ziad. Um, like there are usually like some people out there that um, give enough of themselves to help do the unlearning and help do the, the deconstructing of a lot of the things and a lot of the systems that you can learn from. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of people would probably say me um, because I'm always trying to help people to understand like what it's like for me to have to navigate spaces as a they, as a them, you know, as someone who shows up effeminate at times, may show up with masculine energy at times. Um, so yeah, I think those are always great resources, it's like following people, but actually like engaging with people and, and knowing people and having those type of people around you and in your life. Um, I think that's kind of like the important thing. I think about how like my fraternity has benefited from being able to know a person like me, how my my brother, all, all of his friends benefit from being able to have a person like me exist around them. Because sometimes it's just actually having that person like exist in your space um, to help you kind of break down a lot of those uh, norms and those barriers. But I also tell people to kind of think about themselves, like, what would you do if if this wasn't a construct? Right. And it's like women weren't allowed to wear pants. And now women wear pants like Think about and I, I'm like, just think about like a simple like the, the simplicity of it all is like, you know, back in what I don't remember what year that the that norm changed, but it was probably less than 100 years ago. Like a woman wearing pants was seen as like a sign of disrespect to men. And so it's like, think about like how that changed over time. Right. And I, yeah, like how that changed over time. And so I think things as simple as that and reminders as simple as that. Um, and also reminding people to just think about, like, what would you do if this construct didn't exist and to, like, have people sit and actually reflect on that? I think it's the easiest way for them to start to have not just empathy for those who actually do exist outside of those norms, um, but empathy for yourself to to realize, you know, that you, too, um, that there are some things that you may have been holding yourself back from because of a construct that uh, isn't fair to you either. So you were just listening to you and reading your book and then this movement, this Black Lives Matter movement that it's, that's finally hit the mainstream. Are you exhausted? I mean, it, it just feels like I, there's all this, uh, people ask me a lot of questions and I'm, I'm not an activist and I'm not a journalist. So even just within my group, I'm their Black friend. So they ask me, you know, well, how can I do better? But and it, at times I find it tiring. But the fact that you are doing the work every day um, is it, I just I just really wanted to reiterate because we have a lot of allies that listen to our podcast or follow us on Instagram. Uh, from your perspective, how exhausting is it? And, and maybe it's not exhausting to you, but what is your perspective on that? Um, it's extreme. I mean, no, it's extremely exhausting uh, because it's like we don't. Some people like I think some people live at like live in the theory and it's like some of us live 
in the reality. And so it's like, I don't just live in the theory of what it means to be black and queer or, you know, like you have a lot of people who will talk about things and talk about and theorize blackness and theorize queerness. And it's like, I get that and I appreciate the principles of that. However, like some of us have to actually live in that. And so it's like, not only am I living as this person at this intersection and in this existence, I then am required to teach you out of, teach you out of like abusing me in many ways. And it's like the, like the burden becomes on the oppressed to teach the oppressor to unlearn in many ways. And that's exhausting. Um, because that work should realistically be on like white people, right? Like white people should be the ones who are actually, or like they like to say good white people, which is like why I have such an issue with the term good white people or good cops. It's like, but what does that mean, right? Like if if you see one cop with a knee on someone's neck and the four of y'all stood there, like which one was the good one exactly, right? Like, and you can't tell me that. So all five of the bad apples just happened to all be on the same shift at the same time at the same station. Like, so come on, like, when do we get to this space of like realizing like that, that, that doesn't make sense. And like good white people, it's like, well, I'm sure the same way I have cousins in the South, y'all have cousins in the South. So if y'all are in the North and y'all are voting one way or feeling one way or moving one way, and your cousins in the South are voting against that and feeling it. When do y'all do the work to fix them? Why is it on black folks to have to like work to get them to not harm us and to not do anything to us? Um, and so, yeah, it's extremely exhausting. And, you know, but unfortunately, the work then falls on some of us and um, we don't really have a choice in many ways. Like we have to do the work uh, on behalf of our communities if we're trying to get to like this place of liberation. And again, for me, I'm often not just fighting one like outside. I'm not just fighting people outside of who are black folks. I'm often fighting black folks because they're indoctrined to think that people who are queer are also the enemy or against them. Um, and so, yeah, it just becomes like this. It just becomes tough and it is exhausting. You, you had you had an amazing line in your book where you say um, something along the lines and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you about where you say you're always coming out when you're queer. It's always, it's always a question, you know, you meet someone new and it's, it's like, are you gay? You know, it's, it's, Oh, and I, it, that for me was like that emoji, like, like you can never just be you and show up. There's always going to be some, and it's not really a question. It's just like, this is so, it's like so important to read and learn um, on the, all of the different uh, different intersectionalities of people, because it's not just about um, it's not just about being around or thinking or, or um, intellectualizing something. You need to really understand from the perspective of the people who are living in in whatever way they're living, so that we can actually understand what that reality is. And you know, not it's not actually how we're living. It's not our story to tell, but it's so amazing how eye-opening it is when you read a story from a different perspective, how much you can learn. There's not a question there. I'm just kudos to you. Your book was just incredible. The, th the problem with the question is that, again, I don't want you to keep up and having to educate. Um, but, but what another thing that I picked up, uh, up on in the book is that I had a really tough time in sex ed. I went to a Roman Catholic school and there was this whole idea about uh, passing around a flower 
and the flower, as it got passed around the class, everybody had to take a, a petal of the flower. And when it got back to the teacher, um, she said, now this is what you are after you have sex. And it was like a dead flower with no petals on it. <laughs> it was just like abstinence was everything, you know, even forget about the banana. We didn't even get the banana. Um, but it blew my mind just, just reading, having that and reading your story and under, like, why don't we talk about different forms of sex and sexuality? You know, it's like, it's, a, it's just omission. And, and because, because why? Because of religion. Okay. But if my daughter goes to a public school and I promise you when she goes, there's no religion there. And I promise you when she gets up to sex ed, there's going to be a banana. It's not going to be even a, um, a flesh colored dildo. You know, we haven't figured that out yet. Do you think we'll get to the point in, in our lifetimes where we see change happening in education? Yeah, that's an interesting question, only because like sex, sex in this country is still like such a taboo topic. Um, you know, I mean, and again, it's directly correlated to like how political and how politicized sex is um, and not just in music, but like literally like the whole issue of the Supreme Court is Roe v. Wade, like which it has, you know what I mean? It's like men making the decision on women's bodies and um, in there, in the context of man and woman, because that's how it's viewed instead of just like uh, those people who have those particular reproductive organs, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it's just so politicized to a point where I don't know if we could move the needle on sex ed uh in a way that's impactful um i mean i think about like my book and like how i talked about sex i talked about molestation i talk about sexual assault and i talk about like all of those topics and you have some people like oh this may be too adult for kids and it's like yeah but if it happened to me when i was a kid then why wouldn't we give this information to a kid so it doesn't happen to them like it, it again it's like this catch-22 almost like where there's this belief like, well, if we don't give them the information, then they won't want to know and want to explore it. And it's like, well, no, they're going to know it and they're going to explore it anyway. The problem is they're going to explore it without resources and tools. And so they're going to make mistakes the way that I made mistakes and the way that many of us make mistakes in the way that many of us um, do things that tend to set us down a course of where we don't have agency over our bodies and where we don't um, practice safer sex methods or we don't even have the language or to, to even know what we're doing in many ways that could be harmful to us in our in our youth that then can have major implications and effects on us when we get older. Um, and so my hope, though, is that like texts like mine and uh, texts that are being written by others that at least explore sexuality uh, for the young adult audience are going to continue to be received. Uh, I, I will say mine is being received pretty well, which is surprising because we weren't really sure. Uh, if I was a white gay, it would be different, but I'm not. And so we weren't 100% sure how it was going to be received. Uh, but I will say like there are school systems that are reading it. Um, there are teachers who have reached out to me about it and saying that the students are really, really like receiving it and it's making them question things and, and think through things and think harder about things. Um, because the, the sex education is it's extremely important. And I, I feel like what they do or what we do is like we 
we make up that like some topics are too heavy for kids. And it's like, but these kids are living through these topics. And so in many ways, it's like, there's no such thing as a heavy topic if a child is living through said topic. And children from the age of eight or nine are already starting to have images. They see images of sex and they are already starting to develop, you know, in, in many ways. And some of them are hitting puberty, you know, by the age of 10, age of 11. And it's like withholding that information from them rather than teaching it to them and teaching them how to be responsible with it. Um, I think it's just more harmful than good. I, I mean, I will say, I think like shows like Euphoria and like there are like some shows that are now like allowing the exploration of that, at least at the high school age, um, which I think is extremely important. I think cartoon shows like Big Mouth, even though it's like way over the top. Um, I think it's important though, because they're like 12 and 13. And even though we see it as funny as adults, it is important because that's how raging, you know, kids' hormones at that age start to get when they're trying to explore and figure things out and things are changing and things are growing and they don't have the information to know what's actually happening with their bodies. And so I do think we are starting to see at least a small shift downward in what we feel is an quote unquote, appropriate age to start having these conversations. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think withholding information from kids is just um, at this. I mean, especially as black kids like or black folk, like information is always withheld from us. Our history has been withheld from us. So I just have no belief or desire to, to withhold that. Like I imagine that my uh, nephew um, will probably start to learn about me being queer by five, by four, by five, you know, like once he starts getting language to 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 have those conversations, like if I'm going to be like this well-known queer person and clearly then the youth that are in my family are going to have to start to have some understanding of what that means for me and what that means for them as the people who are, you know, in my family. So that's, I guess that's just kind of how I see it. I think that the shift is moving downward, but I think we really have to have like a a, a real heavy conversation about what topics we're considering too heavy for kids who are experiencing them and who are going through them um, simultaneously. I think that's a great segue into one of the questions I had further ahead, but I'm going to place it here right now. So you're obviously a big advocate on sexual health. We see you talk about it on Twitter. You talk about getting your HIV testing often. And one of the things that um, I, like I noticed because I know your story and I knew your story a little bit more before I read the book, was you didn't actually talk about that in the book. So I'm wondering, is that something that's coming in a future book? Is it um, something that you intentionally left out? Like what was the the situation? Yeah, and I've gotten this question before because people were like, you're such a you know very vocal HIV um, activist in many ways and advocate. Like, was it, was it an intentional to leave it out? And I touched on it like very briefly, but I left that part out because that isn't part of my story until I was like 25, really. And so um, the book ends at 21. And so it was like, do I put this in and, and it make it weird? And people are like, well, why, why was this part left in? Or do I just save that for like the next part of my story? And so I think in many ways, like I'm actually glad that I stopped at the age of 21. I think because I'll be 35, you know, in a few weeks, but I think the next 20 years will probably be such a much different book as I've moved into this 
space of being a public figure now. Um, and so people will be able to connect the original story to whatever that next story is and how I had to navigate those spaces. Um, and I also think that I've written a lot about HIV. I think that's probably one topic that I've written about the most. Like, I mean, there are probably hundreds of articles I've written around it. And so I just didn't feel like it was necessary to um, to put that part of my life in the book. One, because it hadn't happened yet. And two, because that part of my life is very, 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 very public already. And I didn't, in my opinion, I felt like the, the sexuality part uh, was much more important than the introduction of stigma. Um, because unfortunately, like as Black queer people, like we're born into not just the stigma of being Black, but we're born into the stigma of the HIV epidemic. Um, and it's like, I think it's important to let people know and let people understand that HIV does affect, you know, Black uh, men who have sex with men at epidemic level rates. But I also think it's important to not at the same time, like start stigmatizing sexuality um, in that way for that particular demographic, um, simply because of a circumstance that they didn't create. And so I felt it was just more important in that moment to be informative, but not to to um, to weigh my story down in that way, because that just wasn't my experience between those years. Uh, and it wasn't something that was heavily on my mind or heavily that I thought about during those years. Noted. Thank you. Well, we look forward to your next book. <laughs> that must be said. <laughs> um, to, to go back to All Boys Aren't Blue, there was a part that I actually wrote down when you said growing up that the only place you felt safe was in your imagination. And I'm like, what would be the first thing that you would tell young people who are in that same position? Um, I mean, you know... I I like to tell the truth about the situation. And I mean, honestly, I still feel that way. Um, and I still feel that way for many of the black queer kids, like the safest place they'll ever get to live is in their imagination. Um, but I will at least say now the difference is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Turning that imagination into a reality is a must. Um, I don't think I realized that when I was doing it, um, when I was daydreaming and when I was living out the life that I wanted to, to have in my imagination, I don't think I ever saw it as a possibility. Um, and then like even once I went to college, I say like I, I thought going to college would allow me the space to just automatically live as who I felt I was. And it didn't. 
And so then I went, you know, even further into a, a place in a space of like, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Like the only time I may be able to live my life maybe in secrecy or in, you know, like kind of in the shadows and kind of have one separate life here and have one separate life, you know, with my family and my friends. Um, and so I think now, though, the great thing is like kids have the opportunity, one, because they're identifying at a much younger age than we used to identify. Um, but two, that there are some systems in place uh, for for them to um, not have to live out their lives in silence or in secrecy uh, or in their imaginations. Uh, but we also have to be very honest that it's still dangerous for many of them. It's, I mean, it's dangerous for most of them to come out, quote unquote, come out um, and and broadcast what their identity is and what their sexuality is and what their gender may be uh, to people who don't have language and to people who don't understand and to people who shame it and, and attack it. And so I always tell, you know, people like, you know, you have to do what's best for you. Um, and I use the term inviting in. I don't like the term coming out. Um, I think coming out gives power to like to, to people, to other people, whereas inviting in is like, this is my existence. And like, I feel like safe enough to let you into my existence or let you into my world. Um, and so I always tell kids that, too, like it's about taking back agency over when and who they get to tell and not feeling forced that they have to tell because of this notion that you have to tell hetero community that you're not heterosexual rather than you inviting people into, you know, into your community that isn't what the quote unquote norm has been created or told to you as. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's what I would tell kids. Like, you know, like the safest space, cause even there's some days, like even with me, like the safest space is still like in my apartment, in my mind, just thinking through things. Um, but that at some point you will be able to, um, or hopefully you'll be able to, express yourself and and live authentically and like have the imagination and the thoughts in your mind actually become your actual reality. That was amazing. We always talk about self-care um, and we spoke about it a little bit in the beginning, but one of the most um, important things about self-care that you also speak about in the book is, is having a support system um, and choosing that support system, going out and advocating for yourself and finding the people, the right people around you. Uh, but I'm, I just turned 40 and I think I'm still working on that. And I think there's a lot of people, so it's not only you, there's a lot of people who haven't found their right circle. What are some tips or advice that you would give to people looking to try to find the right circle, the right, um, people around them? Yeah. I always tell people like social media isn't just like meant to just for posting, and I think it's a great way to find community. Like I've met a lot of people virtually first through social media, through us having like interests and and like ideas, and then started to form and bond uh, relationships with those people who have actually become like friends in many ways. Um, and many of them who I've actually, you know, gone from having a virtual relationship to having a in-person relationship with, and one where I was able to hang out with them and meet with them and, um, build a, a real like, you know, support system around myself. Um, and I always tell people like, sometimes you got to put yourself out there too. Cause I think a lot of times we don't, we reduce ourselves in many ways. Um, I know I'm good for doing that cause I'm naturally an introvert. And so like, there are many times where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just not going to put myself out there even enough to have a support system. 
Um, but I think, yeah, like sometimes we have to take a chance on ourselves and put ourselves out there so that people even know that we exist and are looking for that type of support um, in those type of ways. Uh, and yeah, like I've had to learn just to kind of like be more open to different types of people. Um, I would say like my friend circle is eclectic. It, it, you know, it's not one size fits all. And um, I, but I think that's because I've opened myself up to meeting people who may have different perspectives and different backgrounds and come from different regions and um, other than myself. And I think a lot of people search for community and people who like almost look like them in many ways. Like you'll see some friend groups and you're like, how did, how did that happen? Like, you know, like how did y'all all end up being like the same shade, the same body type, the same. And it's like, that's an intentional choice. And, and again, like friendships are political. I think everything we do is, a, is, a, is has a politic to it. Right. And so when you see certain friends, friend groups that are eclectic and, wide ranging is that's a choice. Like that's an active choice that people are making to say, like, I don't want to just only be around people who look like me and think like me and act like me. Um, and I think those are the best type of support systems you can build because you then get uh, support in ways from certain people that other people can't provide. And so I think that's the best way to approach it is to make sure that like your support circle doesn't always look like you. Um, because you need a myriad of people who come from different experiences to potentially um, help you with a, a situation or help you with a thing that everyone who may be looking like you or kind of just like you can't provide you. That's hype. Um, okay, so this is an interesting question that sort of came from many conversations we've had with our other friends who are Black and, you know, the difficulties of being black in the world. And so how do you tackle the intersectionality of blackness and queerness without seeming like not for the culture? Um, I mean, it's tough um, because everybody expects you to be black first. And so it's like, I don't know. And again, I'm always like, I don't even know what that means. Like, because I'm, I only, or I primarily reside in black community. Like, my friends are black, like the spaces I inhabit are primarily black, like all those things are mainly black. And so I'm always just like puzzled in many ways when people are like, well, you have to be black first. And it's like, yeah, but like if I'm only with black people, then the thing that I get attacked for first is my queerness. Right. And so it's like I have to then be vocal about that, even to y'all and even against y'all in many ways, because our blackness isn't the issue. And my queerness is why you reduce my blackness when in fact it only enhances it in many ways because it adds an additional layer to the way that I have to navigate my, my blackness. And so, yeah, it, it can be hard. And it's funny because I had this question the other day with a friend who was asking about, um, we just discussed heterosexual black men. And I was like, well, yeah, it's tough because like they don't, in many ways, many of them don't understand um, the nuance of what it is to be a black queer man or a black queer male presenting person in this world and they only can see themselves as the the most oppressed group in many ways and then they see black women i mean they i mean they i mean misogyny and sexism like there's they literally just are indoctrined based off of how the community above us sits and acts and treats women and then they 
it do the same things to the community that they um, exist in. And so what we are saying, like when we say like, well, all black lives matter, you know, and they're like, well, I don't understand. It. It's like because like black trans people are still black. Right. And so it's like how, you know, like how do you say black lives matter? And at the same time, say you don't like trans people, you don't like queer people, you don't like disabled people or poor people or like insert whatever your descriptor is before the, the fact that they're black. Um, and so that's kind of what the real issue uh, is, is because they don't operate from a lens that's uh they don't operate from a lens in many times that includes every part of our communities. Um, they just see it as, well, this is the main goal and we have to lead to the main goal. And it's like, yeah, but you can't get to the main goal of liberation if you're not coming from a lens that includes everybody within blackness that needs to be liberated. Um, and just many, and, and yeah. And so like, I don't know. I just don't worry about it anymore. I, I just lead and do how I need to do for the groups that I represent and the groups that I sit in. Um, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And it, yeah, it causes a lot of contention and it causes a lot of people to be like, oh, you really don't care for black lives. But it's like, no. I And, and you know, like, I think at some point you just have to be honest and be like, you're right. There are particular black lives that I'm probably not going to care about because if they're not caring about everyone else, like I don't I don't have like a desire to be like the the the. Uh, the head of morality, um, like, you know, morality says we should care for everyone, but we know all skin folk and kin folk, and we know that everybody ain't gonna make it to liberation. And so you just have to get to like a real place where it's just like, okay, well, my work is to do the work of the most people who I can get to liberation from a model that includes the most people. Um, and can't and I can't be worried about those who are worried about my model that includes more people than theirs. So, yeah. The accuracy of that. Um, we were doing a little search on your Twitter. We love your we love following your Twitter and keeping up. But something that struck us was we're all big manifest gals. And we saw that in 2017, you had tweeted book deal columnist show writer and then today you have three book deals with all boys aren't blue you were a columnist for into an afropunk and you have a tv show in development and more tv stuff coming soon that gives me chills to think that that was literally three years ago um but everyone has their own way of manifesting so how do you go about turning those dreams into plants yeah, I'm very big on like manifesting, but I'm also very big on um, writing things down. Um, I write everything down. I have like <clears throat> my goals set up uh, in my room that I can see every day so that I can look at them and I can kind of like remind myself of like where I need to go and how I'm going to get there. Um, I'm very big on scheduling, very big on like planning out my career and planning out the things that I want to do and what I want to see and trying to make those connections with the right people in the right places. Um, and yeah, I just have a drive. Like I know like if there's something that I really, really want, then I will put the time and the effort into it. Um, I think a lot of times people people want to manifest things, uh, but not be ready for when the thing comes. And so I'm always thinking about that too. Like, okay, like if I want this thing, it's like I can't have 10 things in my hand and still be wanting this 11th 
thing. Like at some point I have to get rid of some of the things that are already in my hands. I have to close some things out. I have to um, finish some projects and I have to do these things first to even allow myself the space to have the thing that I'm trying to to get uh, or trying to manifest. And I think a lot of people uh, forget that part uh, that you have to do the work first of like the things you already are carrying before you can go and like pick up something else. Um, and I also think that a lot of times people um, mistake um, mistake tests for blessings. And it's like, I think you have to have discernment of like when the universe is testing you to see if you're ready for opportunity or if it's the actual opportunity. And I think I've kind of gotten to a place where I can tell like when something is just like, you know, this is just a test. Like this really isn't the opportunity, but this is a test to see if I can handle the opportunity based off of if I lean into old habits or if I have grown enough to get to a place where I can do the actual work for the thing that I want. Um, and so I think that's kind of how I just take that approach to getting these things. It's like if I put it in the world and I say it, I then go into action around like how I get to those places. That's so insightful. I've never thought about that. of having to let go of something in order to let something else in. It's really great. You put that perfectly. Um, a lot of writers are trying to get published. How did you find your publisher? I know it's, it's a very hard thing. You know, everybody has the book and they want to get published or they've been denied so many times at different publishers. How did you find your particular publisher? How did you get published? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I didn't have like the, the um, I guess the horror process that so many others had. Like I, I found an agent through Twitter. Like I had an agent who was following me. I found him. Um, his name was uh, Eric Smith, sent him like my proposal, we worked on a proposal for like two months. He pitched it out to a few places and like within two months, like the publisher uh, for Ross Strauss and Giroux, who I went with, uh, picked it up and, you know, wanted to make an offer on it. Um, I know that's not everybody's traditional publishing story. It is a lot of hard work. And I mean, like even for like my next deal, it was a lot of hard work um, with the proposal and, and pitching it out and all, and all of that. Um but yeah, I think if people really, really want to get published, you have to really sit down and figure out like, what is it that I want to write about? What is it that I want to do? Um, really come up with like a great proposal, like work on it, have like a really good editor look at it. Um, I think there's just a lot of work because I, I get that a lot. Everybody's like, oh, I want to write a book. And it's like, yes, but like, has this book been written? What is different about your book from the books that have already been written about this particular subject or this particular topic? Like, what are you bringing different to the table? Um, yeah, so I'm always like pushing people to like challenge yourself a step further because everyone has lived a life. Um, you know, everyone could probably write a memoir, like, because we've all lived and had experiences within our lives uh, that are important and that people should know about and that people should read. And so it's like, what makes your story stand apart? And sometimes it could be the way that you live your life and how public you are about your life and the things that you do with your life. Um, but I, I always challenge people, like when you want to write a book about, especially if it's going to deal with anything about yourself or trying to motivate others, um, are you able to do that now? Right. Like without your book, can you already do that? Um because I feel like I had already built a platform, had already written articles and I already, you know, motivated and galvanized and, and done a lot of work before the memoir came out and then affected people's lives. I was already doing the work to get to the place of that. 
Um, and so I think it's like taking that step first to, to realize too, like if this book becomes a thing, you become the person. Like I'm not, like my book, I'm the person in the book. Like my book's not some fictional character. I am the person that's in the book. Um, and so, yeah. So true. And and with that being said, I know your, your memoir is currently being optioned for TV. Would you play an integral role on the production side of that? Yeah. So I, um, in addition to being the co-writer, I'm also going to be one of the executive producers. That's amazing. And so, yeah. So I'm really, really excited um, that we were able to negotiate that. And I mean, Gabrielle, she was amazing in making sure that like I have a, have a lot of say in how the show goes and and what the show is about and the direction of the show, um, because it's extremely important uh, that me as a black queer person have that type of power in the writing room, have that type of power in how I'm depicted uh, because the character is me at the end of the day. And so how I'm depicted and like what stories we're telling, how we're telling the stories, all of that is going to be like just super important um, at the end of the day. And so I'm glad that I'm able to have those type of roles and titles in the development Um, and, you know, getting that type of, role in those type of roles early on helps when you start to try and get additional projects because they can already see like, okay, well, this person has already been given these things. So it's not like a, a risk the next time uh, you, you try to work on your next project. And so I'm very, very glad that I got that type of TV development name early on uh, in my process. 100%. As it should be, like that's the most accurate way that it's actually going to be portrayed on screen. And then do you, you you have other TV opportunities coming up, you said? So, yeah, um, I mean, the great thing is, like, because I'm always writing, um, that means that there's always space for my work to be adapted. Um, and so, yeah, I have a TV and film team and, you know, we're constantly working uh, behind the scenes on ideas that I have, um, projects that I want to see put out in the world. Um, I think that not enough uh, talk is talk has been done around just like um, what young black boys deal with in terms of like sexual violence. Um, I think that that's like a super important topic that needs to be covered, especially when you have rappers who, you know, actively talk about how they pay, you know, grown women to have sex with their nephews and sons who were like 12 and 13. It's like, such a sick culture because we know the reverse of that is never acceptable. And so it's um, one of those things that I think though goes into why you see so many, you know, black boys become black men who are misogynists, who are sexist because they've already from a young age been told that they have power over these adult women and like that sex and, and sexual conquest is their path and journey to manhood when realistically in many ways, their innocence is being stolen and they're, you know, being forced to do things. And then like, that's just like that particular side of it. But then there are just black boys who are being sexually assaulted and sexually abused, who have no space to, to outcry because we're expected to have to fight back. We're expected to defend ourselves. We're expected to be able to do those things. And anything other than that is looked at as a sign of weakness. And um, I just think that that's such a heavy topic that needs to kind of be uncovered. I think about like how the Boy Scouts had a reckoning. I think about the Catholic Church had a reckoning. It's like there's a particular reason that black boys have not been able to have their moment in Me Too and and all of those things. Right. And 
the illusion, in my opinion, is simply because, oh, it, it automatically would equal queerness or homosexuality if, if, if we talk about it in that way, right? And it's like, no, that's not okay, right? Like, the boys from the Catholic Church, the boys from the Boy Scout, like, none of them were painted with some brush of homosexuality. And their abusers were the priests and the scout, like, they were the ones who took the most of the shame and the most of the guilt as they should have. But I feel like there's some underlying fear that if we tried it with our communities, the shame would go to the abused and not the abuser. And I mean, I think the history is well out there with R. Kelly and with Russell Simmons and with just Bill Cosby, right? It was like the shame went to the um, the abused and never went to the abuser. And so until I guess like more recently, um, the push for it. But I think that's the same thing that potentially could happen, but I think we still need to discuss it. So that is something that I'm like really, really thinking through TV wise, film wise, that needs to be put out there um, in a major way. 100%. So that's mind blowing and very exciting because I feel like that's an important conversation. Um, but I mean, this brings us to the end of all of our questions, George. We're so happy to have you on this. I'm so glad that we made this happen. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me and the girls. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I like uh, I keep thinking about all the work I have to do. So just, <laughs> <laughs> we need to get to it because we need more of you. It's like in talking, the I talk, I'm like, oh my God, I keep thinking like, oh God, you got to start writing a treatment for that. And so I'm just like talking through the more work I need to sit and do. But no, this was great. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you, George. We just, we need to reiterate, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing for all of us. Um, it, it is work for yourself, but you're really making a difference of work for the world and it's making a huge impact we're very grateful for that and um for you being the one to stand up for all of us and keep that keep it going and keeping coming up with more ideas to to change the narrative thanks so much for listening if you love this episode you can follow us online at c-o-c-o-a-n-d-c-o-w-e subscribe rate and leave a review it seriously helps and we would be so grateful Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.